Um, so you... it's okay. We can edit it over. Is there something you're gonna ask? Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Pipeline Superheroes podcast. Joined as always by Keegan. Hey there. And I'll let the guest introduce himself. Hey, I'm Shrevan Pitagunta, the CEO and founder of Hyperspec AI. Cool. And thanks for coming on the show today, of course. Um, would love to just jump into what Hyperspec AI is, what you're doing differently, and you know, some lessons of growth and, and go-to-market that our audience can learn from. So uh, with that, I'll let you tell us a little bit about uh, Hyperspec AI. Uh yeah, thanks, Grant. Um, so what Hyperspec is developing is we're focused on the last 5% of AI performance. So you'll see that a lot of machine learning models are able to be like 95% accurate. But to go from 95% to like the last seven nines of reliability, which is what's required for like industrial automation, um, you need a different set of tools and infrastructure to enable AI to perform at that level. And this involves a lot of like self-supervision, unsupervised machine learning, um, and other semi-supervised techniques to be able to label large volumes of data uh, while not being operationally or asset heavy. Um, and so we are developing technology to solve that problem. Are you guys primarily working in sort of like the autonomous car space or really any sort of autonomous? I know you have a you have a mapping mapping expertise on there. Are you guys also working with like mapping companies and things like that? Uh, I think anything related to spatial computing and outdoor environments is mm -hmm. what the initial target market is. Um, so when you think about spatial computing, uh, especially there's two aspects. One is the ability to perceive, another is the ability to interact. Um, so we focus on the ability to perceive. And that category has, you know, sensor calibration, sensor fusion, mapping, localization, perception, um, and and some uh, rudimentary uh, capability to uh, uh, do motion planning. But you know, that's typically when you do an integration with navigation maps or high definition maps, you can do the 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 motion planning as well. Yeah. Oh, very cool. So how did you end up deciding to really focus on this, this 5% aspect as opposed to the other 95? I guess, you know, obviously your answer would probably be that there's a lot of people in the 95% category. Um, but what, what drew you to conquering, tackling this problem as opposed to the other issues in, you know, spatial awareness and things like that? So I think um, when you look at robotics in general or machine vision, um, it's really useful if you don't need human supervision to have the device do what it needs to do. Mm -hmm. The limiting factor now is that 5%, right? Like the whenever there's an interrupt, um, if you have a thousand devices that work 95% of the time, that means uh, at least 50 devices per day are you know, uh, getting interrupted by something. So you can't scale that to address a whole market. And so to take something from like a novel scientific te uh, technology to production ready, robust, highly performant type of technology, we need to evolve uh, the type of data that we use to train the system. Uh, I'll give you a very simple example. If we're collecting data indiscriminately, 
uh, let's say the autonomous driving use case, 95% of your data might be from highways, right? But all the interesting edge cases might happen on neighborhood streets um, where you have like maybe like 5% of your data comes from that. So if you train your machine learning model, there's a heavy bias towards that 95%. Um, mm. You have underrepresentation of data on that remaining 5%. So what we do is we give software from the data collection stage to the annotation, to the machine learning ops uh, that makes that end-to-end -end experience optimized for finding those like unique scenarios that actually add value to the performance of the ML model. I love that. Because I mean, that is one of the biggest issues that I, at least from what, from my understanding of a lot of autonomous systems is, like you said, those, those very fringe cases and building models that are able to handle those fringe cases at scale. Um, so that's a very cool place to be. I love it. And, and one of the cool things that we're leveraging is this concept of like federated learning. Uh, a lot of our customers don't actually want to share their data with us. Like they don't want to transfer data from their compute infrastructure to ours. So we came up with this concept of like, we deploy our infrastructure onto your compute stack. And by interacting with the product and seeing you know, where we can make improvements in auto-labeling, we use something called federated learning to like learn in a distributed way without actually offloading the data from the infrastructure. Hmm. Uh, that's also pretty interesting because um, A, you know, we we abide by all the data privacy laws, but also the the model is learning over time uh, by getting greater exposure to the exceptions. Yeah, so we're able to ingest all the learnings without taking any of the data that they're based off of in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. What's like? What's the layer of abstraction there? Is it just necessarily like a nomenclature classification system within the labeling? Like, if I'm like, if I'm an end user and I'm getting like value from the federated learning without like it being specific to my data. What's like an example of that? Oh yeah. So, so think about, um, you know, uh, Toyota might have more data in Japan compared to Mercedes, which might have more data in uh, Europe and uh, North America. So, uh, so typically they'll have different representations in, in terms of like what exceptions their data is exposed to. So having the ability to label the data uh, and use their uh, feedback from their annotation team to improve the auto-labeling process um, can be leveraged on both sides. Um, so uh, the auto-labeling gets better, which means their models that they train against auto-labeling will be, will be more performant in both Germany and, and, and uh, Japan. Uh, in this case, but we're not actually transferring data between the two entities. Um, and, and that's what they want to protect. Cool. Well, makes sense. Um, what does it mean to be a mapping guru? Oh, <laughs> so I've been obsessed with maps. Uh, I, uh, I would say like starting in 2013, uh, I was looking at ways to encode spatial information uh, into like simplified one-dimensional cryptographic hash keys. So if you, if you like subdivide the world into like voxels, each voxel, you could treat it as information and you can describe that information as a hash. And using this technique, you can actually use it for like localization. 
object detection. Um, and it's very lightweight because uh, it's essentially a dimensionality reduction, right? You're going from like six dimensions where you have like X, Y, Z, roll pitch, yaw, to like a alphanumeric string, which can be queried very easily in, in like a database. So we came up with that technology um, when I was working at Civil Maps. Uh, and then in hyperspec, I've been focused a lot more on the real-time mapping side of things uh, with the crypto, uh, like the object detection and the sensor fusion calibration. So I would say for the last 15 years, I've been working on maps. I've been working on uh, either HD maps or real-time maps or integrating navigation maps for routing. Um, so anything you wanna talk about maps, I can probably answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I used to work at Planet Labs, which is a silent imagery uh, provider, yeah. and they set out to take a picture of every inch of the Earth's landmass every day um, mm -hmm. and, you know, measure a lot of stuff over time. So there's a lot of really interesting applications, like, you know, a lot of placements in the New York Times, if like, you know, North Korea is building something outside that they said they weren't going to build, uh, we took a picture of that. Um, a lot of applications for maritime, um, energy, agriculture, you name it. So always been really fascinated by what you can discover by taking pictures. And I don't like, you know, they kept it in a lot of, there was like a lot of visual processing. So not something as uh, queryable as um, hashes, but like they really set out to make like a queryable Google Maps that's updated every day. So, you know, really loved that team and loved the mission they were building there. So um, I'm sure you can, you've come across them in, in yeah, uh, I, I do think that aerial maps are key. Uh, we are actually using aerial maps for localization. And um, one of the key aspects that we've realized is that when airplanes fly above the buildings, there's no like GPS noise from the reflectance on the buildings. So you actually get really good accurate localization data. And the accuracy of the images is quite, quite high. Um, so aerial maps or satellite uh, imagery typically doesn't encounter GPS noise. So one of the things we've done is we fuse aerial imagery data with the car's terrestrial cameras. So in areas where you have like very tall buildings where the GPS just goes bonkers, we can still um, localize the vehicle using something called a vision positioning system. Um, and that allows us to actually uh, rectify any error in the GPS or um, address any drift in the IMU which is like really valuable um, from, from a safety perspective for, for some of the sensor fusion algorithms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so we would also love to jump in and uh, discuss about how you're growing uh, hyperspec. There's a lot of interesting strategies. And, you know, I know that you um, are definitely running like your own uh, startup playbook. So we'd love to understand like the nuances of that, where you think that, or where you're really experimenting with things from a growth perspective and what you've learned. Yeah. Um, I think I have a holistic perspective on how I approach growth. Um, I think the one key lesson that I've learned is the faster that you can iterate, the more responsive you can be to a market. Um, so we use the UDA framework, which is like observe, orient, decide, act. Um, so we optimize for fast cadence. Um, and then through each iteration, um, we update sort of our understanding or perspective of where we are in the market. Um, we then have two life cycles that we sort of track. One is like the company life cycle, which talks about what stage uh, is your company in? Is it like inception, growth, 
maturity or decline. So always having a strong pulse on where you are in terms of a company lifecycle um, kind of signals what you should be focused on. Um, so most startups are either in the inception stage or in the growth stage. Um, and, and the second type of life cycle is the product life cycle. So product life cycle is, you know, usually it's ideate, develop, um, or build, develop, uh, iterate, launch, stable, stabilize, and then maintain or kill. Um, so each one of those stages is focused on um, collecting feedback from the market, right? So one of the most important lessons for building a successful growth business. Um, I've actually worked at Samba TV and uh, Civil Maps going through the cycle and now at Hyperspec is uh, I think a, a company's ability to articulate the problem in the customer's language versus mm -hmm. um, sort of articulating the solution um, from the company's perspective, right? So no one really cares about who you like, what, what you do. People care about how you can be helpful to them, right? So one of the biggest lessons is to approach the market from the perspective of identifying the personas that are key um, to establishing um, empathy with the customers, right? And oftentimes what happens is the assumptions that you go in with uh, are, are, are slightly um, varied from what the customers actually want. And you have to iteratively evolve uh, the messaging to reflect the customer language. I would say like mm -hmm. that's like the first milestone. Um, and so once you hit that milestone, then you start getting pulled like, oh, we want this or we want some other variation of this. And so the second sort of, I think like milestone would be like the pattern recognition. So I have this ability to articulate your problem, um, but uh, how you want that problem to be addressed might be different from customer to customers. You might get like very a variance of feature requests. So instead of just letting the customer drive your roadmap, I think it's really important to have some of the pattern recognition around what are the data points that are common across these customers and then codifying that into here's my feature set, here's my roadmap, here's where we can, you know, this is my change log. Um, and this is how we can sort of deliver this value to you. And so it's a constant process of understanding their needs and requirements and doing the pattern recognition and re-articulating the value back to the customer and then getting them to confirm that like, hey, like this is what I want, right? I think that's like 80% of the battle. Once you're there, then it's sort of their idea. Um, they will tell you, this is how you can fit into our larger process. Uh, especially in B2B enterprises, I think having an understanding of what their process is, is more important than like what your capabilities are. Right? So if you understand their process, there's different types of like value add that you can provide them. So for some B2B companies, it's about roadmap compression, right? Like they're spending like hundreds of millions of dollars driving a certain initiative. And if you can reduce that roadmap by like, seven months or, or a year, or, or you accelerate the cadence at which they can deploy something, then the value to them is in the tens of millions. And so you price against, against a, a percentage of that, right? So in the case of like autonomous vehicles, then it's like the ability to like build maps, the ability to localize, ability to handle all these edge cases. So they have current processes that they have internally that are like 
building towards that. But if you can say, hey, I plug in here, you, it, this is still your you know baby, but we make that um, thing into a rocket ship because you can now deploy it 20 times faster, then it's much easier to like codify the value. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In different verticals, that might be slightly different. Um, uh, you have B2B2C, which is like, okay, like I can help you like deliver value to your customers um, as well. Um, so, but we kind of fit into the B2B category where we optimize the internal processes of the businesses that we work with and the end customer is that business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And then if I'm someone listening to this and, I, and you said something really interesting, which was like putting your marketing and the way that you describe your business within the customer's language. And, you know, maybe I'm just getting started in a new vertical or, you know, as a new business, how do you figure out what that is? Um, in addition to like, obviously talking to prospects and clients. Um, yeah, that's a really good uh, question. Um, you can do uh, certain strategies like create different landing pages with different value propositions. Um, you can uh, then measure uh, the conversion rate. Like if, if you allocate like, let's say $500 ad credits to each landing page, you can see the number of signups for each one. Um, so it's apples to apples comparison. Uh, you're targeting the same market segment, but then the messaging that leads to a higher conversion resonates better with them. So that's kind of like uh, a shot in the dark approach, right? Um, so you use that as feedback, um, and then you sort of have like a, a nuanced hypothesis on what you think their value is. Then you can go to trade shows, you can go to uh, conferences and have... Um, you know, be a speaker at a conference where you're trying to, you know, put forward this idea uh, and, and exposing it to scrutiny, right? And uh, I think the key is to welcome that scrutiny and use that as feedback to tweak your messaging. So, um, so have a stand or uh, a stance on a particular approach that you think might be beneficial to the customer and sort of put yourself out there, whether it's like on a YouTube video or on your website or LinkedIn inbound con content marketing um, or, or being a speaker in a conference, uh, typically you'll have an audience show up and give you feedback. Uh, and so those are like some of the early indicators of where, uh, where things are resonating. Um, other approaches are to like write a white, white paper. Um, and also you can see the trends. Uh, you can go to the places where customers are trying to figure out their problems, right? So. Uh, I think one example that I really like is how Dropbox grew. Um, Dropbox grew by like not marketing a cloud-based storage solution. Uh, they grew by targeting people who are searching for how do I restore my hard drive on my laptop. So it's like the problem focus narrative usually has a bigger draw compared to like a solution focused marketing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this. I think it's something that's wildly overlooked, especially in B2B SaaS there's a tendency to really focus on the technical features and all that sort of the bells and whistles that are exciting to, especially the product folks who create them. But in the end, you have to think about the human at the, at the end of this life cycle who's actually going to be using your product, right? And are you making their life easier? Are you saving them time? Are you saving them headaches? Are you going to make them look really good to their bosses and their management because you've done, they've done something better. And it's coming back to those like day-to-day -day problems of a person sitting at their desk or whatever they're doing. Are you solving that for somebody? And then tying a lot of your creative and things you go to market with to that, um, to those value props. 
to, hey, I'm going to save you time. I'm going to save you headaches. Uh, I'm going to stop you from worrying about this particular thing anymore. Um, and really getting into, like you said, that that empathetic mode of what is this person feeling on a daily basis and how are we solving that for them? Um, we yeah. see a lot of clients, we have to steer a lot of clients away from the the features, um, you know, features, bells and whistles type of creative because it seems easy. Like, look at this cool thing. Everyone will love this. Um, but in the end, if you're trying to break through the noise of somebody's feed, especially on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it might be, you got to trigger that emotional aspect where they go, oh, that sounds, that sounds great. I could use that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so that does require some, you know, in-depth understanding of the customer persona. So mm -hmm. if you're starting, like, let's say someone new with a completely fresh slate, like my advice is to attend trade shows where some of the personas that you're targeting are coming and giving talks. Like oftentimes they'll say like, these are the things we're struggling with. And, you know, that's directly from the horse's mouth and use that to your advantage to sort of come up with a solution that you think might solve that problem. So I think listening as opposed to pitching for the first like half of the product discovery exercise is I think key. Um, and a lot of folks are very excited about their idea um, and they wanna just start get it started. Uh, they just wanna get started with execution but I think the preempting and inve investing a lot of time in execution before the idea has been vetted by the people that you're trying to sort of build value for um, can can cannot it can lead to like non-ideal out outcomes. So I do think um, the successful businesses that I've seen have a very solid understanding of the personas that they're targeting. And typically like these organizations also have like demand generation teams that are like solely dedicated to continuously like talking to the market. There's someone like just on the phone on a regular basis. And typically it's like the founders or um, marketing focused people. Um, and, and they're just constantly creating those interactions, constantly sending out um, uh, the the value propositions to to these personas and and monitoring the feedback for how they're responding to it yeah i think that's super key um i'd be curious your perspective i always find there's an interesting difference between talking with someone who's maybe like a decision maker or a cfo or ceo um, and then somebody who's maybe more of like an individual contributor who's more of a technical background and oh, yeah. i mean especially with your product right it's super technical and there's so much um, really specific engineering behind it. Um, how do you find that you have to kind of balance out the like high level, you know, leadership level value props versus the technical aspect? And how do you kind of balance between that messaging? So that's a really great question. Um, so we went to conferences and focused on all the VPs and technical uh, leadership that, um, you know, has the decision-making power to like bring on board a solution like ours. Typically mm -hmm. what happens in those exercises is we send them some value prop materials um, and then that leadership will go to their engineering team and be like, hey, like, what do you guys think of this? And typically like that engineering team, the first, if that is their first interaction with our company, uh, we will seem like competition. Like we'll be like, oh, we're already working on this or like this is like, oh, okay, it's marginal value. Um, so I think the key is to co-opt the internal engineering resources and make them the champions that bring your solution to the technical leadership. Yeah. Uh, what I found to be like better 
for us because it's organic. Um, and so we structured our go-to-market plan to reflect that. Um, so yes, we can you know drive a lot of the relationship building at, on at the leadership level, and they should be aware of our product. But I think the pull for using our product needs to come from within the engineering teams. Um, so marketing to developers is very different than marketing to senior leadership. It's not brochures. It's not um, sort of uh, you know animations. It's about like technical documentation. Uh, documentation around sample integrations, uh, SDKs that like make, you know, plugging in our software easier into their software. If you can containerize your product or if you can abstract your product into a framework that they already use, like those are the types of market acquisition strategies we have to focus on. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can enable them to use your product, even if they have like a different database, uh, or if they're using a different cloud provider, um, or if they do their own user authentication, like these are all the different types of integrations that they care about. Um, because at the end of the day, they want to keep a lot of the capabilities in-house. Um, so if you can make them the champion and co-op them in, you know, in your, your success is their success, or their success is your success, um, basically, uh, that creates a pull from within the org. Uh, for the senior technical leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I think it's such an interesting audience to have to work with. I've, I've worked with a few companies who the strategy is to um, be be an asset early on to the technical team who will then say, we love this product. We want to use this across the rest of our organization and other products that we build. Um, and it's definitely a, a shift in mindset from just you know running banner ads and running that kind of stuff, which you do for a little more of like a high-level branding or more of a leadership audience really getting into a community um, and being an asset in that way. Yeah. And, and, and I think the number one thing that matters there is daily active usage in your product <laughs> because you need to create some form of stickiness. Um, and let's say like you have a user base that's like 70% people that are just curious and they want to use your product. Um, and then 30% are like the power users that belong to these large enterprises. I think that 70% that uses your product every day is really crucial to creating a polished user experience for that other 30%. So the other thing we invested in is not just like, oh, we're going after the enterprise customers. So therefore, like the only users on our platform will be enterprise. We said, hey, why don't we get even the non-paying or low-tier um, freemium users to like use our product daily and incentivize them to do so. So our whole stack is exercised and the user experience is streamlined. So by the time the power users like start using our platform, like we're ready to scale. And a lot of the issues that they might have encountered have already been encountered by the premium tier. So I think there is a, a little bit of, um, uh, of an advantage to having uh, two types of services. One that is like, that promotes daily active usage and one that promotes revenue. Because um, oftentimes if you have a long sales cycle, um, then the feedback for your product is also quite slow, which means that the uh, users that are coming onto your platform are, are, are what I would consider like mission critical because they're the ones bringing in revenue. And if you didn't have enough bats at improving your product experience, then you risk the potential of like losing that user, increasing your churn. 
but if you have a uh, two separate groups where you have daily active users coming on and using it every day, then the churn gets reduced, which means like you retain more of the paying customers. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got, you got a lot of wisdom there in, the, in this product lifecycle. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, multi-time uh, founder. It seems like you've picked up a lot and you, you really, um, you really have an intellectual interest in this stuff. Uh, is there any like sort of sources of media, either podcasts or blogs or anything that has really, you know, uh, given you some of this knowledge that you've been able to use in your startup journey that you'd recommend? Um, a lot of the uh, inspiration for me has been from my advisors, I would say. Um, so I think for every entrepreneur, like surrounding yourself with uh, people that you consider to be ahead of you in terms of ability to execute, ability to like think critically and solve uh, strategic problems. I think that set of resources is, is mission critical. I think in terms of media, um, there have like I, I do like listen to uh, a lot of TED talks and read a lot of books uh, around culture because I think the other thing that matters. Uh, to growing a company successfully is uh, leadership succession. So oftentimes, like we don't talk about this, but basically uh, on the flip side, where let's say you're hyperscaling and you're getting a bunch of demand and money thrown at you, the, the, the problem a lot of companies have is the initial set of people that were executing really well are unable to scale the organization to a point where... Um, you know, those individual contributors become managers and then managers to managers, right? So if that infrastructure is not in place, then that could also negatively impact your growth. So culture, I think, in addition to execution uh, is, is really important. And for me, like I depend on my advisors um, for more of the execution side, and I try to instill really good cultural values by um understanding like human psychology and like what motivates people. Makes a lot of sense. That's really awesome. Yeah. I think um, it's definitely like a score takes care of itself approach where like if you focus on the inputs and making sure that everyone's in the right seat, that like the outputs sort of work on, you know, can sort themselves out. Um, but awesome. This was a really great conversation. A lot, you know, of great learnings here. Is there anything you'd like to promote or any kind of person you're looking for uh, that could possibly be in our audience? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the traditional, uh, you know, um, ask from us would be like, we need folks on the technical side, and we need folks on the go to market side. Um, so I think we're interested in, you know, uh, meeting, meeting those folks and, and, and learning from them. And whether that's through an interaction or someone we hire as an advisor or someone we bring on the team, uh, I'm open. Uh, I like, I love to network and I love to meet new people. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for the time today and we'll be in touch soon. Thanks so much, Grant. Keegan.